Remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, and we'll go through verse 24 this morning. Now hear the Word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither Moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness! No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we come very humbly and soberly now to your word with expectation to hear the voice of Jesus, who is the prophet who does declare the things of God, who is among us this day, and whose word is before us. And as the word is open, we look to you, Spirit, who have inspired faithful men of old to give us this special revelation to reveal to us of the triune God in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us an understanding that can only be spiritually discerned and spiritually appraised. But we pray this understanding would be in our heart and not merely in our mind. And you would press it deeply into the fabric of our lives to bring forth the fruit that would please you. A fruit that would cause great joy in our own spirit and cause a release from any anxiety And we pray that you would guide us now so that heaven would become more real and it would become more vibrant in our lives even while we yet here live on the earth. And so we pray your spirit would guide us in the application specific that when we leave, we might be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. feel a little bit like Moses this morning when God calls him to go into Egypt and he says, uh, but I don't speak so good. Uh, I'm somehow stammering and uh, a little bit with my speech this morning for some reason, so I trust that uh, even in spite of these things that the Spirit of God will be very clear with His Word this morning. I want to bring us up to speed, if you will to where we are in Matthew 6, in the middle of this great sermon on the mount, probably one of the most, if not the most famous passage in all of the Scripture, and the most commented on. But let's not lose our moorings here and forget the forest, because we're looking at a few trees. Where we've began is we've come into the beginning of our New Testament with the gospel. The gospel is the good news. And here we have a gospel of Matthew who is specifically writing about the king and the kingdom. 
And so in Matthew 1 and 2, we have a word that is repeated, a word that is a word of origin, the beginnings. And there is a parallel there as we consider the beginnings. And it's the beginnings of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Messiah and His messianic reign here upon the earth. And so in verses or chapters 3 and 4, we have the drawing near of this messianic king along with this gospel message of the good news. And then we have that gospel message beginning to be articulated in this sermon in chapters 5 through 7. This particular sermon began with those blessedness, the, the very character of the kingdom citizens. It was not how we become kingdom citizens, but it is the character of which the Beatitudes are describing of those who are citizens of the kingdom. And so in verses 1 through 16, he's talking about this blessed character and also the influences of the kingdom citizens of being salt and light. Then beginning at chapter 5, verse 17, he begins speaking about the kingdom's citizens' righteousness. It's a righteousness that will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this is a righteousness that is internalized upon the heart. The Mosaic law has now become internalized and inscribed and imprinted upon the hearts of kingdom citizens. Their hearts are really into this. This is not duty-bound. This is something of great love now that is in the hearts because their hearts have been altered. Their hearts have been changed. And the consequence of entering the kingdom by faith is we have an entirely new attitude, an entirely new look, outlook, new worldview, an entirely new perspective on all of life. And so chapter 5 is speaking about that kingdom righteousness in more of its ethical sense upon our hearts. But in chapter 6, he begins speaking about the practical aspects or the practice of righteousness. And so here we have the practices spoken of in terms of giving alms and prayer and fasting, these particular practices that are inherent of true Christian religion. And yet he took some time to expound on one of those, and that was the Lord's Prayer. You'll find some direct correlation between the, the message as it continues with some of that expounding of the Lord's Prayer. And particularly even this morning, you'll see some connections drawn to the daily bread and to the kingdom and His will as He begins to unfold this great message and gospel of the kingdom. But now He comes in chapter 6, verse 19, to a stewardship over material resources. And he's going to address for the rest of the chapter something of our citizen kingdom relationship to these material possessions that we possess and are all around us and that truly are just a part of us. So you're going to find the word treasure there. Verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures. Verse 20, treasure. Verse 21, treasure. It goes on in the end of chapter, or verse 24, you can't serve God and wealth, mammon, wealth. So we're speaking about treasure, what to eat and what to drink and what to put on and where to live and all of these things. 
And he's telling us how to be right stewards with the things here upon the earth. And you might recall back to when we were looking at give us this day our daily bread, a a right attitude that's almost prerequisite for coming to that particular prayer request. And one of those is to be stewards and understanding what that means. So the following section, after we finish up with verse 24 and perhaps we get to... uh, Next week or so, we'll begin at verse 25. And it's going to deal with the priority that we have of these earthly possessions. Kingdom citizens have a responsibility to be stewards of earthly possessions. We're not to be um, little hermits off divesting ourselves of all of the earthly possessions. That is a skewing of the worldview of which the Bible assumes in this particular passage. The passage before us exhorts us to cultivate a heart for heaven and making heavenly use of earthly possessions. And that's really the heart of the matter that Jesus, our Lord, is speaking. Now let's begin as we unpack this bit of a difficulty of the passage of Scripture. And we're going to begin at verse 24, which happens to be a pivotal verse, a hinge. Because everything begins to work up to a direction until verse 24. And then after verse 24, everything after that begins to uh, work in the other direction. And verse 24 happens to be the hinge. So we're coming to the door and we see the first side of the door and we pivot the door, and we see the back side of the door, but the passage hinges around verse 24, which becomes a very principle. It's focusing in on this particular verse. So as we look about the principle of this hinge verse in this passage, it informs us no one can serve two masters. Now, the word for serve here is the term slavery. And that's an important thing to understand as we look here. It is the word slavery. You cannot be a slave or you cannot be enslaved to to masters. And the word master here is Lord. And the implied word here is you cannot serve two masters simultaneously. That's the implication. And the reason for it, he then gives, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Now there's the reason. Because he will find himself in an impossibility. There's an impossibility both emotionally and practically. There's an impossibility for serving, being a slave to two masters simultaneously, emotionally, because he will come to hate the one and love the other. But practically, there's an impossibility because he will come to be devoted to one, and as he becomes devoted to one, he will despise the other. The word despise means just to, to think little of. So he's going to have very little attachment to the other as a result. Now, slavery is not an eight-to-five job. 
Slavery is a 24, 7, 365 life. And that's the key to this understanding here is because what happens when two masters demand 24, 7, 365 of you, you now are pulled and you're torn and you have a crisis of allegiance in your life. And that affects your spirit toward the two that are demanding this kind of attention and obedience and submission. Our Lord is stating the impossibility of getting caught in that position. And here he applies that at the very end of that verse when he says, you cannot serve God and wealth simultaneously. It's impossible. You can't do that. You've got two masters you're a slave of, and they will demand 24-7 of you, and you have here an impossibility. Both of these are full-time lords. Now let's consider those two lords. First of all, there is the Lord, which is the material side of life, and that is a full-time master. Now, that's actually due to the very way in which God has made us and constituted us. Remember back in Genesis 2 where it says that the Lord God took of the dust of the ground and He formed it into the man and He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The Lord made us in our constitution deliberately and by design out of the dirt of this earth that He created. He had created this earth out of nothing. He breathed it into existence by His Word. But man, who would then be the the chief and the pinnacle over all this earthly creation and vice-regent of God Himself here upon this earth, He took from the dirt... He took the soil which has all of these elements which make up all of the matter here and He took that and that's the dirt side of me. And because I am constituted by the very nature of this earth, we have a need to eat and we have a need to drink. And this has been from the very beginning by the way of our very constitution even before the fall we have this need because of how God has designed us. Now, we also have need from shelter, of shelter to protect us from the harsh elements and protect our well-being. God made us with a material nature such that we have to have material to exist and we have to have material to be maintained. But on the other hand, that's not all there is. That's not all there is to us. God took the dust, and then the dust He took and He breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. And that's the other half of man. That is the spiritual side. 
And man became, that point, a living being. Now notice how this verse completely annihilates any possibility of evolution that we have evolved from some lower life or from some animal life. Because it says that God took the dust and he breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living being. It does not say a living being became into a man. It's critical to understand that point because we are directly made from the breath of God and quickened. And because God breathed life into us, He made us uniquely different from all of His other creation here on this earth. We were made in the image of God. We bear His image. We were made in original righteousness and holiness. We were made with a conscience. We were made a spiritual side to us that animals do not have and that answers to this image of God in us. So we have these two things that coexist in the constitution of every human being, the material side and the spiritual side, and these things coexist in every human being. And everything that we do in life involves the material universe. In fact, I could just boil it down to say that this way, everything we do in life involves money. Or when there is no direct currency, there's some form of exchange that reflects the values of things needed for man to exist. Food, water, shelter, now clothing. It takes money to exist. It takes money to do every single thing we do. It takes money right now to worship. It takes money to pay these lights. It takes money for you to put your clothes on. It takes money to put gas in your gas tank to get it. Amen, Perry? It takes money to keep your vehicles. It takes money for Bibles you carry. It takes money for those musical instruments. It takes money to train those musicians. It takes money for everything you do. It takes money for your very existence and your maintenance and your sustenance and your, your everything. You can't get away from it. It's a part of the very constitution and the way God designed you. Life requires money in some form. And it requires money all of the time For everyone, it is a full-time Lord. It is a full-time master. 24-7, 365. Now man's also a fallen creature. And this is the problem. After the fall, man is naturally bent toward covetousness. That is how he comes into this fallen world. He is bent on covetousness. To be able to clutch in his grasp more and more and more. That's, that's, how, that's just his nature. That's his fallen nature. It's a natural tendency going on in every individual all of the time. Reaching out 
and accumulating more of this material world for myself. It's a tendency. And that's a conflict that will never cease. Even good people will sacrifice almost anything to get more money or what money can buy. They sacrifice a lot of their spare time. They sacrifice sometimes their spouses. They sacrifice sometimes their children. They sacrifice sometimes even their own health. Because the natural tendency in this fallen flesh is to go for the money. To go for the money. Sometimes they sacrifice even their morals. Sacrifice their conscience. And kingdom citizens like you and me, we come to understand this tendency because God has told us these things. And we understand this tendency and we accept Christ's resolution to the problem because this is a problem. We do have a way out of this problem. There is a door that we can walk through that resolves this tension, that puts this crisis at ease. Because men have tried a lot of arrangements of their own to relieve the tension, to solve the crisis, to, to appease the dilemma. And none of them will work. And that is why we have to be sola scriptura and we have to take our Lord's Word and we have to lean on His teaching and we have to understand His is the only way that brings the resolution that will solve this problem So if you find yourself torn in this situation, this kind of love-hate relationship, this kind of lukewarmness in your spirit toward God because the cares of this world have come and choked out the fruit, then the Lord shows us a way out in verses 19 through 23. And so the resolution for the dilemma... He teaches us where to store treasure. Verse 19. Now we're going back and beginning. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. So he's teaching us where to store up treasure. The idea of treasure is not only explicitly in the text before us, but is also hidden in the text before us, depending on what version you're reading from. You see in verse 19, do not lay up for yourself treasure. The word lay up is a verb from the exact same root as the noun treasure. Do not treasure up for yourself treasures upon heaven, do, here on earth, but treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is. Five times he uses this particular word so that it is the highest usage in any part of the whole Bible in such a very short place. Only 25 times is it mentioned in the entire New Testament. Five of which are here in just three verses. So now we know what this passage is about. We know what this passage is dealing with. We know why this passage is in the Bible. It has to do with treasure. 
And do we not all like treasure? The word treasure comes from the exact words very, very close to the word from which we get thesaurus. You know, a thesaurus is a compilation. It's a treasury, if you will, of words that all have something in common, like, like synonyms. So when we think about the treasure, it's an accumulation of, of things that are related because they are valuable. So that's what a treasure is, things that are related because they are valuable. We have money, we have silver, we have gold, we have precious metals, we have precious stones, we have objects of fine art, there's real estate, there's none of that being made anymore. There's cattle, there's flocks, there's wardrobes, there's food, there's aged cheeses, there's fine old wines. Anything that you can store away as a hedge for the future is a treasure. Now, verse 19 states something that's very difficult for us to accept. It says, do not lay up for yourself these things upon the earth. Now, what the Bible does not say is it does not say, do not store up treasures. It does not say that. We love treasure. God has made us that way. Treasures are not bad. But the point of what it's saying is where should we be laying up for these treasures? The teaching is where to store your treasure. You're going to have treasure. That's assumed. And Jesus flatly forbids storing it up and accumulating it here upon the earth. He then gives us reasons. He points us to a very fragile little creature with wings that you can destroy by a very gentle touch, the moth. And this little moth has the ability to get into your treasures and destroy it. He then turns to rust. The word rust here really is a a more generic word than just a corrosion of metal, but that gives you the idea. It has the gnawing of something, even the gnawing of varmints that can get into your stuff and destroy your stuff. It has the reference of consuming things. So there are things in this fallen world naturally, that just come in and attack and destroy our treasures, those things that are valuable that we accumulate and save up in order to hedge against the future. But there's other things also that are not natural things like that. There are thieves that break in and steal. So if the moth and the rust doesn't get it, it's prone and susceptible to men. Fallen men. There are many ways in which people can get your money. Some are legal and some are not legal. But this world, which has bent on covetousness, will seek in their own worldview to get your money. It may even be lawful for them 
We have entire industries that are lawful, but filled with fraud and deceit that are primarily aimed at getting your money. Probably think of a number of them right now. Pharmaceuticals comes quickly to mind. But there are a number of them. The world is bent on this. And if you are placing your hope in those treasures here, you're going to be sadly disappointed. We read from a text earlier from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, according to the testimony of the Bible. Solomon was also the wealthiest man who lived in his time. He says then, as he's lamenting some of these things, and he comes later to say, you know, I I finally realize it's really the fear of God that gives me wisdom. But when I placed it all on these earthly things in this way, it was but folly and vanity. He says, then I labored. Then I hated all the labor that I had labored under the sun because I must leave it to a man who must come after me. And I don't know if that man who comes after me, if he's going to be a wise, or, wise man or a fool. I don't know what it's going to do. We, can, we came into this world with nothing, and we can take nothing out of it, speaking about this material life. And you know who would come right after Solomon, right? Rehoboam. And just five years after Solomon died, Shishak, the pharaoh of Egypt came and invaded Judah. And in order to pay him off, Rehoboam, his son, took Solomon's treasure and handed it over to Shishak to pay him off. That's vanity. What is true for Solomon is also true for you. You might remember that Solomon had 600 large shields out of pure gold made. Each one of those shields weighed seven and a half pounds. He also made 300 smaller shields of three and three quarters pounds of pure gold. Just a little math says that each one of those large shields would be about $142,000 in today's gold standard of about $1,300 a troy ounce. Each of the smaller ones, about 72,000. If you total all of those shields up, just the shields now, nothing else, just the shields, over $100 million that Rehoboam pays off Shishak that Solomon had accumulated, that David had accumulated. Remember the foolish servant in the parable that we read from Luke's gospel? He began to be prosperous, and yet he couldn't fit all of his fruit into his barn. So he said, I'm going to tear all these down and build builder barn, bigger barns so that I have a place to store all of this wealth that I've accumulated as a hedge against the future. And the Lord says, Thou fool, this night shall be required of thee. Thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose will these be? He that layeth up for himself treasure is not rich toward God. So what's the answer? What shall we do? Well, the answer is to store your treasure up in heaven. 
The point is not having treasure at all. The point is where will you place your treasure? And because if you work hard the way that God has designed you, if you work hard, you will have treasure. And if you work hard and you seek the kingdom first, God will bless you with treasure. But where is the key? That's the key issue here. And the teaching has to do with treasure that is stored up where nothing can destroy it and will be waiting for you. And that is something that will be enjoyed by you. So the Lord presents us here a possibility to store up treasure that is immune from all loss. And the heart of the matter really comes down to truly how real is heaven to me? How real is heaven to you? How real? And what can you do to make it more real? And this is a problem of faith. As one preacher said, we have trouble seeing that we're just on the front porch. We haven't even gotten in a room yet. We're sitting here. We're not even, we don't even know the great and the blessing that heaven is and the mansion that Christ has prepared for us by using that kind of language. We're just on the front porch. But what can I do to make it more real? And that's where verses 22 through 23 come in. But if you're the lamp of your body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, that's actually kind of a difficult couple of verses to then try to marry into the context and see the very place it is on the heels of this entire uh, narrative, of this teaching. How does that connect? What does that mean? But there's a real simplicity to it. It talks about the eye. And if the eye is good, it is able to see according to how things really are. And then my whole body is able to move about according to the light that it now has that the eye gave. That's the idea. If the eye is single, and that's a very difficult word in our English, but in contrast to the bad, if the eye is good, it's going to see things as they really are. That's why we began having you meditate in Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, Hebrews 11, 1. Speaking about faith, Those are the, it's, the, it's the reality of things that really are, even though your eyesight can't see it, but with the eyes of faith, it truly is. So if your eye is good, it sees things according to how they really are. And then the whole body is able to move about and to behave and to function according to the good light that the good eye has given. But verse 23, but if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If I have a bad eye that doesn't see well, and it doesn't truly know what's going on, to be able to interpret life, to be able to make those kinds of understanding, 
then therefore the body can't move according to really what's going on, but it does move according to what the bad eye sees. So you may think you're about to sit down in your easy chair, and what you're really about to do is fall off the cliff. The body is full of darkness because the eye was bad. And see, that, that's the basic meaning of where he's bringing these two verses in. But what does that have to do with treasure? Because he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A few weeks ago, Keith preached on a message from Colossians on set your mind on things above and not on the things of the earth. And one thing that I want is I want heaven to be more actual in this life. I want it to be real right now. I want to be able to set my mind on the things above and not be so distracted and overcome by the things of the earth. I want heaven to be real. I want it to motivate every decision I make. And the answer is embedded in this passage. If you get your treasure up into heaven, it will pull your heart right up there with it. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you get your heart into something, something that gets real to me very quickly when I get my heart into it. And when that gets real, there's no complacency about this treasure. It's the one thing that engages a person. It's the thing that will get you up early in the morning and set you about in its pursuit. You'll go out flat out all day long in, in just, just pursuing with great energy and motivation. If you can just get your heart where your treasure is. If you can get your treasure in heaven, your heart will get there before your time. That's the way you make heaven more real. Our Lord's argument here is my heart is supposed to act like the healthy eye. That's where verses 22 and 23 come in. And that's why he uses the illustration. God gave us hearts, and the hearts that God gave us come pre-programmed. And the hearts with God's programming in them is supposed to lead us into the light so that our whole body acts according to the real light of things. And that's the way God made it from the very beginning. He made us so that we like to possess things. In the garden, He gave us trees of all sorts of varieties to take and eat. He put gold right there in the garden. He did that in relation to man that He made in God's image to take and be a creator of things. Using His creativity and His ingenuity because He's in the image of God, He can do that. Animals can't do that. He programmed our heart to possess things and to do things with it. And Jesus is teaching us here that if a man desires things so that he may lay them up into heaven and accumulate his treasure there, then his heart will lead him right there. 
So God's going to make use of the desire that he gave to man to make him heavenly minded. And that's what this passage is about. It's cultivating a heavenly heart where our treasure is. Our heart has to be the clear eye. It has to see things that really are. It has to believe the Word of God that these things truly are real. And then all of this body, the way this body uses the tongue, the way this body uses its time, the values this body has, the decision this body makes, the people that this body hangs around with, and the places he goes to will all be led by the eye. The good eye. The clarity of that light. If I can get this man's heart oriented toward heaven, see? And the way I do that is to have him put the treasure up there and this will guide his whole body here on the earth to be just caught right up in there. (sighs) But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, does it? I mean, that's, that's the design. That's the intent. That is the answer to the dilemma. But it doesn't always work that way. And many people, they're... Hearts are dark, and therefore it leads them into more darkness. They are looking for possession. They think they will have a treasure. And as they look and as they seek the treasure that they think, they are falling off the cliff all the while. And then Jesus' words then whose will these things be? When your whole treasure was on earth, your soul may be required of you, but then whose will these things be? And what will they do with them? But lay it up in heaven. And that's where your heart will be. And that's like having a clear eye, and your whole life will be full of light. As one pastor said, the only way to invest your treasure in heaven is to invest it in people who are going there. And if you're really intent on building up an investment, then you need to be thinking about how God has constituted you, how God has designed you to be. How can you have more treasure in heaven and how can you get your heart to follow it there is by putting your ingenuity to work. Jesus once says the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. Because the children of this world will take their creativity, they'll take their ingenuity, they'll take the image of God that is still in them and they will fabricate and they will create and they will design and they will have all of this creativity being put into action with energy and hard work behind it to figure out how they can increase their treasure here. But if we took that energy and that creativity and all of that God-giftedness that He has given to us 
and think and remember that He has created us to be this way and we put that ingenuity and all of that work and labor and and toil into this for heavenly treasure, how much greater will the treasure be and how much greater will God's blessing be upon our efforts? To support Christ's church. To give to God. To support the planning of new churches. By giving a little more so that more missionaries can go to difficult countries and preach the Gospel. To help someone in their training or their education. And when you do that, you're laying up for yourself treasure in heaven and there your heart will be also, and heaven will become more real. And the ripple effects of this will happen throughout all of your life, through all of the decisions and the worldview and the spectacle because your eye is becoming clearer and your heart more illuminated. And this is how we cultivate a heart for heaven. Folks, we are so wealthy that the very clothes that you came to church with today in some countries, the amount of money that you spent on your shoes and your slacks and your clothes that you're wearing, the jewelry that you have, all of that, you just add that up, and whatever it is comes out to more than what some people make in their entire year. We are the wealthiest generation living in the wealthiest country of anywhere at any time in world history. And we have the greatest capacity to be laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. But we have a tendency, we have a propensity to be covetous, to be idolaters, and to want more and more and more. And there is no end to it. We are so rich and yet we want more riches. And that's why heaven becomes a little more dull. It becomes a little less realistic. That's why we become a little more fearful. And we're driven by fear rather than by faith. Why our eyesight is a little more darkened because we're not seeing the glory of Christ. And the reality of heaven is something that we sometimes fear rather than something of which we are longing for because it's not quite real enough for us. And if we began to put our treasures and lay them up and store them up in heaven, it will become, our heart will join it. Our heart will follow. And all of the effects of life will be more settled. We'll have more peace. We're not going to worry as much with these earthly possessions because they're really just, we're just stewards of them. And only for a short time. You can't control anything that's going to happen once you leave with your possessions. But God can. And it has a ripple effect throughout all of our life and our faith and how we live our life, the decisions that we make so that it releases anxiety. We're going to come to that next, are we not? Right? That's, that's a part of this passage. That's the other side of the pivot of the hinge of the door. And as we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, our hearts follow and we have a greater passion for God. The lukewarmness is driven out and the intensity of our love and devotion for Christ becomes all the more real. And so our sickness and death and all of the things that 
that worry us and our enemies that surround us will be defeated more readily, more valiantly, with greater courage and fortitude of spirit. All to the glory and the praise of Christ in whose name we follow. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You'll have treasure. There's no doubt about that. And God desires for a multitude. Just He would love to just pile up all those treasures that you're working for and you're saving for, but now you've got a place that you're storing them that it cannot be destroyed. And you will be able to enjoy it to the glory of Christ one day. And He's preserving it there for you. He's made you this way. Now, in your restored image in Christ, be about the things of heaven. And the way you set your affections on things above and not on the earth is get your treasure there and your heart will follow. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we feel the propensity to leave the God we love and to embrace the earthly possessions all around us and to want more and more and more beyond what we need. And then when we have that one more, then we are not quite satisfied because we're chasing the wrong thing. Lord, we are a wealthy people. Give us a heart to lay these things up and store them up in in heaven, to treasure those things up in heaven itself by investing them here on the earth with the stewardship that you've given to us over all of these earthly possessions. But may we invest them in things that will last. When all the wood, hay, and stubble is burned up, that there will be many precious things left over that will endure. And we will give you all the glory, and all the praise, and all the adoration. We give you all the thanks. So teach us, O Lord, how to walk by faith and to see the glories that you have declared in your word and that our eye would be single, it would be good, and the light, oh, how great would that light be. So we pray that you would remove the blindness and we pray that you would clarify through the glass that we see darkly so that we might see more the brilliance of the glory of the risen Lord And so be changed from glory to glory into his likeness. And we pray this in his name. Amen.